The Destiny Foundation is proud to present this series of lectures by Rabbi Beryl Wine. We hope you enjoy. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, tonight is the uh, final lecture on Purim for this season. And next Tuesday night, uh, there will be a, we'll begin a uh, series of three lectures on the uh, Haggadah of Pesach. Uh, due to uh, popular demand, one person asked me. Uh, they want. I had written. I had written a number of years ago a Pesach Haggadah produced by Art Scroll very beautifully, and someone asked me that they wanted to get the Haggadah. How could they do it? So uh, Rabbi Amsel has uh, obtained a number of uh, the books, and they'll be here next uh, Tuesday night. And uh, if you so desire, you can purchase it, and I'll sign it for you. And in 200 years, it'll be worth money. And I'd also like to remind you of the fact that we are having the annual Shavuos Retreat uh, Destiny at Kibbutz Lavi. We've had a very good demand for rooms already. And uh, I I think it's a very uh, meaningful way to spend the holiday. And uh, I invite you all to come and attend. It says in the Megillah, in the book of Esther, that these days of Purim, meaning the 14th of Adar and the 15th of Adar, so here in Jerusalem we celebrate the 15th, uh, they uh, will never be forgotten. And they will continue. And the Talmud teaches us that they will continue eternally. And the Talmud makes a remarkable statement that even when all of the other holidays are no longer necessary in the Messianic time, in the future, all of the holidays of the year it will no longer be necessary because every day will be the holiday. But the days of Purim will never stop. They will exist eternally. And therefore, Purim has messages for us. So uh, tonight when I speak to you about uh, Purim in our time, there are certain insights and messages that I think are clear or should be clear to us uh, in our situation here in Israel and in the diaspora and the world generally. Because Purim is a repetitive story. It comes back and back and back again. The characters may change, but the prototypes remain the same. There always is a Haman, unfortunately, there always are Mordechai and Esther. 
and all of the other bit players in the story. And uh, Megillah took uh, what uh, could have been seen as a narrative of a political event in long ago in Persia, an intriguing event in the court, uh, the politics of the court, how the king is manipulated, and how at the end somehow it all came right. So if we wanted to look at that narrative straight as a political narrative, something that would be written up in the newspapers of the time. Uh, That's one way of looking at it, but that's not the way the Jewish people looked at it. It's not the way the Bible looked at it, because the the reality of it is far different. So the first lesson, which is a bitter one, is that there's always a Haman. We say it in the Haggadah of Pesach, Shebechol dor v'dor omdim aleinu l'chalaseinu. For some reason, there always is a person or a group of people, a nation or a group of nations, who are preoccupied with what they call the Jewish problem or the Jewish question. And uh, Part of history shows us that the solution always is to somehow annihilate the Jews. Either to annihilate them spiritually, which is one method. Basically, that was the method of the Soviet Union, of communism. To just annihilate them spiritually. No Jewish ritual is allowed, no Jewish tradition is allowed, no Jewish observance is allowed. Goodbye. And the amazing thing is that after 75 years, they were not completely successful. And that the Soviet Jewry, in large part, has survived. Many have come here to Israel, many have come to the Western world, and uh, slowly but surely, it is not only a physical revival, but a spiritual revival as well. So uh, then the solution is to physically annihilate them. That began with the Pharaoh in Egypt, and continues through the Holocaust and Iran and everything else that goes on. And that's baseless hatred. There's no reason. Uh, Paro already set the stage when the Jews were in Egypt. He said, "Look, look how many they are. They're all over the country. They're too numerous. They're too successful. Whatever, they're too. Anything that's T-O-O is not good. So, let us be wise. 
We'll outfox them. We'll enslave them. We'll take their children and throw them into the Nile to be eaten by the crocodiles. They'll disappear. And when they disappear, so then the problem is solved. But uh, it didn't happen that way. Because again, uh, the resilience of the Jewish people is one of the signs of the guidance of God in the world. So the Jewish people survive Egypt. Here comes Haman. And uh, for reasons which the Megillah does not describe to us, he says, Here's again a people, they're all over the place, wherever you go. You go to Montana, there's a Chabad. <laughs> They're all over the place. And they uh, march to a different drummer. Their religion is different. They have a different value system. And they're disloyal. They don't do what the king wants them to do. No, that is a baseless charge. The Jews participated in the coronation of Ahasuerus. The Jews came to his banquet. The Jews were not disloyal. Mordechai is the one that defends him against Bixon Vatherish. But that doesn't have to be true. Yeah, we live in a world where uh, most of what is said has absolutely no bearing to the truth. It's enough to just say it. You throw it out there, and especially in our world of uh, the internet and social media, etc., everything goes. And you throw enough dirt at something so some of it may stick. It does not have to be true. So Haman wants to destroy the Jews. Physically annihilate them. And not only that, he wants to uh, make a profit on it. He tells the king that the government will get a lot of money from it. Everybody's going to make money. The Jews have got all the money in the world. And that this will therefore pay for everyone. So one of the great ironies of history is that the last few few years of the Second World War in Europe, uh, Germany was able to continue in the war based upon the Jewish wealth that it had confiscated. So that when... uh, That's not the subject of tonight's uh, lecture, but... uh, the reparations you should know as important and as magnificent as the gesture was is only a fraction of what was taken. So we also live in such a world. Uh, there are certain people that we can identify as homo. They're outspoken. 
So uh, those of us who lived in the United States in the 1940s and 50s, that's long before I was born, uh, so there were senators in the United States Senate that were out and out anti-Semites and bigots and expressed it on the floor of the Senate. The two senators from Mississippi, Bilbo and Eastland, and others, they've said it with a full mouth. And I remember in the United States there was the German-American Bund that uh, had rallies in Chicago Stadium where everybody said Heil Hitler, Zig Heil. It was a scary time. And there was a candidate for the presidency of the United States by the name of Gerald L.K. Smith, who was the head of a bigoted party that supported the Nazis and supported white supremacy and supported all the bigotries that you can imagine. And he received a substantial vote. Many millions of people voted for him. And this is happening in the land of the free and the home of the brave. So uh, it was not easy to be a Jew then in the United States. After the Holocaust, the situation changed greatly. Whether out of guilt or whatever, it became completely unacceptable to espouse any anti-Semitic statements, policies, or views. And the Jews felt so secure in the United States that they no longer considered themselves to be a minority. Even though there are less Jews in the United States than, uh, for instance, the blacks or the Hispanics or uh, the other, the Asians, all of whom are considered minorities. If you want to get admission to college or you want other benefits from the government, they are minorities. The Jews who are a fraction of their population, we're not minorities anymore. We made it. We're mainstream. Not only mainstream, we're upper mainstream. And therefore, we don't have to uh, claim that we need to be protected. And now, all of a sudden, it seems that we're getting back to the 40s and 50s. Because you have uh, members of Congress that uh, can openly state anti-Semitic slurs, and uh, there are no consequences. It's It's all freedom of speech. And in the United Kingdom, you have uh, the head of one of the large political parties who's an open anti-Semite and says that he is. And he's still the head of the, the Labour Party. 
And Hummun comes in various forms and shapes. There are silent Hummuns too. And the interesting point to me is that Hummun never admits to being Hummun. In fact, Hummun always takes the high road. He's protecting the country. He's doing wonderful things. This whole contempt now with Poland is because they don't want to admit what happened. It's not nice. So you have to rewrite history. You have to rewrite what happened. You have to write that Homan is, and that's what it means, the world doesn't know the difference anymore. Homan says he's Mordechai. He never did anything. Because he's afraid you'll come back and take away his apartment and the apartment that belonged to you or the house that belonged to you in Krakow and you'll take it away from the Poles who were living there. So Homan is uh, an eternal character, so to speak. He's always around. And to uh, ignore it, as many Jews would like to do, is to whistle past the graveyard. Is to think that somehow it's all going to go away. They don't mean me. They don't mean us. The FBI has reported over and over again that the largest number of hate crimes in the United States are perpetrated against Jews. Mainly Orthodox Jews. Who are visible. But when I say to you the words hate crime in the United States, you don't think of Jews. Hate crimes are against other minorities because the Jews will refuse to admit that somehow hate crimes exist. So uh, organizations such as the Anti-Defamation League, which for... Uh, almost a century defended all Jewish interests are now interested in illegal immigration in other minorities because of the fact that we don't want to admit that Homan is still around on an international scale so we have uh, the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, which uh, is an oxymoron if there ever was one. So there, uh, this year alone, there were 127 resolutions against Israel. Four against the rest of the world. We're the major perpetrator of violations of human rights. And uh, that's the United Nations. And uh, we should therefore be referred to the International Court of Justice in The Hague because we don't, we don't advance human rights. So if you put it all together, it's pretty poor and dick. And uh, the fact that we thought that we had a respite 
we thought, uh, as Herzl famously put it, that once we have a national state, anti-Semitism will disappear. Uh, we uh, now have come to the realization that that was all a pipe dream. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, when he spoke in the British House of Lords a few months ago regarding Corbyn, so he said that originally we were hated because of our religion. Later, as the world became secularized, we were hated because of our race. And now he said we are hated because of our national state. <coughs> and that is true. So Homan exists. One lesson. So that's an important lesson that we should always have in mind. Not be naive. Second lesson, which is just as important, is that there are Jews who put their Jewishness first. And there are Jews, in fact, many Jews, unfortunately, who put something else first. Mordechai says to Esther, she's the queen. She's married to a very mercurial person, to put it mildly. The last queen got her head handed to her, literally. because she didn't want to appear in the nude in front of his officers. And he's a man of violence, of moods. So she's in mortal danger of her life every minute that she lives in the palace. You know, they say... Uh, Mel Brooks had a line, he used to say, it's good to be the king, but it's not so good to be the queen. <laughs> Ask Henry VIII. And throughout history. So uh, Mordechai says to her, you now go to the king to plead for your people. And there's a reason that you're the queen. Don't you know, how come you're the queen? Out of all the women in Persia, you're the queen? You took a girl out of the Beishakov and made her the queen? And Chazal, uh, in their accurate and truthful assessment of the people, said that she's not so pretty. She wouldn't have won the beauty contest. But somehow she's the queen. So he tells her, you are the one that has to do it. Me got 
don't you realize that this is why you're the queen? This is your mission in life. This is your mission in eternity. This is how you'll be remembered forever. This is why there'll be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jewish girls named Esther. And then he says to her, and if you don't do it, God has his ways. He's giving you the opportunity. If you don't take the opportunity, then there'll be another opportunity that he'll give to someone else. Somehow it's, this is going to work out. The Lord promised us that we would never be destroyed completely. And he, Hashem, Nisi, the Novi says, I, the Lord God, I have never changed. And you, the children of Jacob, the proof of that, that I have never changed, is that you will never be destroyed. They will try to destroy you. An unending struggle to destroy you, but you will never be destroyed. So he tells her, God will save us. Somehow he's going to save us. I don't know how. Doesn't look to me like it can be done. But I want you to know, Esther, at the base of you and your family You'll be written off the books. Nobody will remember you. You may be the queen, but the Persian Empire will not last forever. And the records of that empire will be destroyed. And no one will know that you were the queen. And no Jew will remember you either. So Jewish people have the quality as a nation that we remember everything. The individual Jews may not. But as a whole, we remember everything. And we remember everybody. And there is an innate drive within us to be remembered. That's why uh, us older people are very happy when our grandchildren have children and name them after ancestors. Now today the fad is to invent all all sorts of names. I don't speak against that, God forbid. I love to hear some of the names. But the Jewish tradition both Svartic and Ashkenazic, was to remember our families to later generations having the same names. The Svartim even do it naming after living people. Because that's memory. Then then I'm justified. Somebody remembered me. Long after the person is gone, someone remembered you. So that means that in the memory bank of the Jewish people, you're there. 
you appear. So that's what Mordechai told her. Listen, my dear, he said. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be quiet. Don't speak out against anything. Don't bother the king. Don't stir up trouble. But if you're quiet in this time, you're lost. Don't think the Jewish people are lost. You are lost. <coughs> and that is what galvanates her into action. That is what drives her. That's what makes her Esther. Now we live in a time so really Esther the comment we can make about her is that now she is Jewish first. She's Queen Esther second. She's the Persian Queen second but she's Jewish first. Now we live in a time when many Jews unfortunately are something else first. They're socialists first. They're representatives of their political party first. They're whatever you name it, but that's what they're first. They're abortion first. How insidious that has become. Even at a time you can murder. Legally murder. Doesn't make a difference. We thought we got past that. The eugenics in the 1920s, we thought passed. We wouldn't do that again. In America, they emptied the insane asylums and killed people because they wasn't fit. Then Hitler saw that the United States could do it, so he did it. Because nobody protests. You're not allowed to protest. If you speak out against it, you're either a racist, a bigot, a xenophobe, whatever, name it. You have no rights. And Jews who are not Jews first are doomed to disappear as we see in front of our eyes, as we see what happens. I remarked to someone today that I really uh, am uh, emotionally uh, excited Purim here in Israel because it's a national holiday, Purim. Covers all the political parties, all the gamut. Everybody's in it. Heard an ad tonight on, uh, on the radio that uh, there's a Megillah reading tomorrow night in a nightclub in Tel Aviv. So it depends how you look at it. It's either sacrilege or it's a look what a wonderful thing. I'm, I'm always reminded of the famous idea that the Rebbe of Bardichev. Uh, was uh, he was riding with someone and he saw a Jew in Talis and Thun 
in the middle of davening, was greasing the wheels of his wagon. So his companion said to the Rebbe, look at that. What a chul of Hashem. He's wearing talis and film and he's davening. And what is he doing? He's greasing the wheels of his wagon. And the Bardishiver said, I see just the opposite. Even when he's greasing his wagon, he's wearing talis and film and he's praying. So it depends how you look at it. I thought that it was great. Going to be Megillah reading in the nightclub, right? Oh, great. So Purim is Purim. And as long as Purim is Purim, so they're still Jewish. But in the exile, Purim is not Purim. And no one realizes that, so to speak, they are the Queen Esther of the time. And that if they are not Jewish first, and they won't be Jewish last either. And that is a bitter, bitter lesson. But all of Jewish history testifies to that. There were a quarter million Jews that remained in Spain because they couldn't leave their wealth. They are not amongst us today. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews in the 19th century who wanted to become Europeans, whether French or German or Austrian or Hungarian. They are not with us today either. Not their descendants and they are with no memory. The irony of life is that the Israeli, for instance, is remembered as a Jew. But not in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, he's an apostate. And he has no descendants amongst us. And no one names their children after the Israeli. And that's true of all of them. I knew a Jew in the United States whose last name was Marx. There are a lot of Jews, a German name. But he changed it. Because he didn't want to be called Marx. So that's another lesson of Purim. Lesson of Purim is that given opportunities, we can do something for the Jewish people. I was told you the uh, told you many times the story of Eddie Jacobson with Harry Truman. The only favor that Jacobson ever asked of Truman, Truman's president of the United States, he could have asked to be appointed ambassador to Nicaragua or somewhere, which a lot of people do. The only thing that he asked him is, go see Chaim Weitzman. Let Chaim Weitzman see you. And that led to the recognition of the state of Israel by the United States of America. Broke the ice, made the difference. So Jacobson was a plain, ordinary Jew, if there is such a thing. He's not observant. 
He's a haberdasher from Kansas City. He's a nice guy. He's the fourth hand at the poker table. But God gave him an opportunity. They came to him. They said, you got to go speak to the president. You got to call up and get an appointment. He'll see you. He won't see any of us. And get him to meet with Chaim Weitzman. So that's Purim. That's Esther. How did the uh, Soviet Jews escape? How did they get out? What happened? The communists were not Choser Betshuva. They didn't change their policy to the end. Even Gorbachev to the end was a dedicated communist and an atheist. Because there were a bunch of Jews, maybe 50, maybe 100, maybe 200, in a country of 200 million then, who said, we want to go to Israel, we want to learn Hebrew, we want to observe Torah. So they put him in jail for saying that. Sharansky was uh, sentenced to 15 years hard labor. There are not many people that survived the Gulag unscathed. And there was Mendelovich and Ida Nudel and Essis and, well, you know, name them. And for once the Jewish people responded. The Jewish people said, Let's do something for Soviet Jewry. They didn't do anything in the Holocaust, but let's do something now. Because they realized, If you're quiet now, you have the opportunity. You can, you can make a mass rally in Madison Square Garden. You can picket the Soviet embassy in New York. You have a chance to do something. So, the Lord presents us with opportunities. He does not direct us what to do with them. That's up to us. And so, all of these fateful decisions which change Jewish life and really change world history are part of the story of Purim. And they are going on in front of our eyes now. There's a Jew running for president of the United States. He won't say a word about anti-Semitism. There are Jewish members of Congress. There are Jewish senators. There are Jewish donors in the multi-millions. But they're all quiet. And Purim teaches us that that is doom. That leads nowhere. Another lesson. Mordechai. Mordechai is an enigmatic figure. The Megillah doesn't tell us much about him at all. What was he before? What was he during? What was he after? After he becomes a a member of the court, he gets a 
prime uh, position with the Persian Empire. The Talmud teaches us that afterwards he became a member of the Anshei Knesset Agdola, the men of the Great Assembly. When Mordechai was the linguist for them, he knew all of the languages. He's called in Tadach Mordechai Bilshon, from the word Lashon, from language, a master of languages. But what do you, what? It's hard to have a handle on him. What is he? Zidati Lumi, Sharedi. What is he? In today's world, you know, you got to be labeled. Who are you? I think one of my greatest achievements in life is nobody knows who I am. People say to me, who are you going to vote for? I tell them, uh, you know, when I go into the Kalpi, into the polling booth, an angel appears before me and marks, takes the the right uh, slip and puts it in the envelopes. I never vote for anyone. But the angel votes for me. So A, what's it your business who I vote for? And B, even if I tell you, what's it got to do with you? I mean, it's your choice. Mordechai is, nobody knows who he is. Except that he's Jewish. Mordechai a Yehudi. That he is. That's how he's identified in Persia. He identifies himself as a Jew. He's a Jew first. And Mordechai is therefore the one that engineers this entire matter. The one that presents the options to Esther. And is present for the eventual triumph at the end of the story. But there are a few things that we have to note that the Megillah says about Mordechai. First of all, he's stubborn. Mordechai lo yichra lo Mordechai will not bow down. Not only will he not bow down to Haman, he doesn't bow down to anyone. He's his own man. Now how about everybody else that was bowing down in the Jewish world? You tell me there were no pious Jews? You tell me they didn't ask their rabbi whether or not they could bow down or not? And the Talmud constructs that in terms of halacha, dry bones law, well, we could uh, find a leniency to justify their bowing down. So Mordechai is the extremist. Mordechai is the stubborn one. Because of you, Mordechai, look at all the trouble we're getting into. If you would just bow out to Haman, he would leave us alone. And Haman says that. When he tells Zeresh, his wife, how great he is and how wealthy he is and look what a family he has and look at all the medals that he's gotten and the awards from the kings and the, you know, the Emmys and the Oscars. 
And he says, But it's not worth anything to me. Why? Because Mordechai won't bow down to me. And Mordechai won't bow down to me. And Mordechai doesn't do it as a provocation. He doesn't do it because it's against his inner principles. It's not Jewish. That's not the way we're going to save the Jewish people. So you can imagine... Uh, that Mordechai would not be elected prime minister. And Mordechai would not be the most popular person in the Jewish world. And there would be plenty of op-ed pieces written in the Shushan Times how Mordechai endangers a whole people by his behavior, by his stubbornness, by his unnecessary rudeness towards Haman. But the Megillah says uh, that Mordechai is the hero. Baruch Mordechai Ayudi. Blessed be such a Jew. At least there's one person that stands up for me. Elio Anovi said it when he said to God, I'm the only one left. I'm the only prophet left. There's 400 Nevi'ah, there's a thousand other false prophets. There's a, you know, there's a whole union of prophets. You belong to the prophets union. I'm the only one left. So then give it up. No, he said, I'm going to make a contest and I'm going to show them that they're wrong and the Lord will help me. Aneini, Hashem, Aneini. Answer me, Lord. Show them. And Elio is our man. We're all going to be visited by him in a month. We have a special cup of wine for him. He's at every circumcision. He appears to us in various guises to help guide us individually and nationally because of his stubbornness. When the Lord said to Moshe that the Jewish people are an Am Kshayoref, there are stiff-necked, stubborn people. So again, that's a negative. But it's also a positive. Because if we would not be stiff-necked and stubborn, we would long ago have disappeared. If we would have bowed down to every human, if we had frittered away every opportunity because of political correctness or because of gain or profit we would have disappeared a long long time ago so Mordechai is a hero even though he got us into this mess even though it's all his fault I remember uh, in 1974 when I was a teenager so I was then the head of the OU Kashras. 
And that was in the middle of the Arab oil boycott in the United States. And it was a, a very delicate time in America. People didn't have uh, gasoline for their automobiles, and it was right after the Yom Kippur War, and they all, there were a lot of people who said it was all the fault of the Jews. It was because of Israel. And why should the United States suffer because of a handful of people living in the Middle East on land that maybe was not theirs? So I remember I was taking a plane somewhere. I had to visit a certain plant and I was sitting next to a woman that was a very well-dressed businesswoman who was working on her papers and out of nowhere in the middle she turned to me and she said you realize that all of this is your fault and I said to her madam it is because of me, but it is not my fault. It's not our fault. But everything that happens is because of us. Because that's the Purim story. It's because of us. It's not Mordechai's fault, but it's because of Mordechai. And that is what creates the situation. Now there is another important lesson for Mordechai is that not all the Jews like him, even when the story is over. The last verse of the chapter is, Ki Mordechai HaYehudi, Mishne Lamelech He is now the courtier in the king's court and he's everything. Most of the Jews say good things about him. But there are those that don't. Throve. It's not unanimous. Rashi says, Pirshu Mimenu Sanhedrin. Some of the wise men of Israel distanced themselves from him because they held he should have been studying Torah instead of mixing up in political matters. So there's a great lesson here. If you want to be Mordechai, you cannot expect unanimous consent. You cannot expect that everybody will stand up and applaud you. That's true of anything in life. Any project that anyone begins, there always are naysayers. There always are people who say it cannot be done. We never will raise the money. It's not necessary. Most of his brethren have a good word for Mordechai. He has good things to say about the Jewish people. If you listen to the radio or you read the newspapers in Israel, you would think we're living in hell. You know, the joke that I've told you many times that the, the waiter comes over to a table in New York with three Jewish ladies eating lunch and he says, Is anything all right? 
Nothing is all right here. Everything is nothing. How about speaking nicely about us? How about saying, look what happened here? A bunch of shoemakers came and made a state. There are 8 million people here. When the British said in 1936 it couldn't support 2 million. A technological leader in the world. There are more people studying Torah in Israel than ever. There are more good deeds done every day here than, than can be counted. So, why don't we say nice things about us? Mordechai says nice things. Even though not everybody agrees with him, but he says nice things about the Jewish people. The Dover Sholom Lechol Zaro. And he searches for peace. It's a long search, a difficult one. With so many obstacles. But it says Lechol Zaro. If he doesn't make it, maybe his children win. And if his children don't, then maybe the grandchildren, and maybe the great grand. Eventually we get there. Because we never lose that value. We never say it's useless. We never say it always has to be like this. So I think these are important lessons for our time. And that's what makes the Megillah timeless. What allows it to speak to us as it does. What allows us to celebrate Purim under all circumstances and in all places. Because It never passes from us. It's never what was. It's always what is and what will be as well. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. That's 1-800-499-9346. We can also be reached by email at info at jewishdestiny.com, and you can shop online at www.rabbiwine.com. Due to copyright laws, we kindly request that there be no duplication of this lecture except through the Destiny Foundation.